Well, good morning, friends. Uh, as I'm sure Amy already shared with you, I am home this morning, courtesy of a stomach bug that has been making its way around the Roscoe house. Uh, seems like it's kind of been everywhere in our kids' school and different places. Uh, maybe some of you are not here right now because you have a stomach bug. Um, but anyways, I'm, I'm really sorry to not be with you this morning. Uh, I felt it was better for everybody, uh, myself, um, because of how I'm feeling and then just to try to keep everybody else there safe, except for you, Phil, you could use a stomach bug. I'm just kidding. Hopefully people laughed at that and hopefully Phil's there or that was a horrible joke. Anyways, I didn't want anyone else to get sick, uh, and so I am home this morning and missing being with you all uh, and lamenting that I am back in this mode of recording a sermon, which is not my favorite thing in the world to do. I wish um, I could be there present with you this morning, gathered for worship, but... Such as it is, it is still the season of Easter. We still rejoice in the resurrection and all that that means. This is now the fifth week of Easter. And I wonder if you remember uh, at the very beginning, we talked about Easter being a term that was derived from a celebration of the coming of spring. Oh, spring. Over the last few weeks, um, I found myself, as maybe you have as well, uh, in different conversations that revolved around the coming of spring and all the new life and the things that are popping up and the things that we enjoy, leaves coming back on trees, flowers coming out of the ground, uh, but maybe more than anything else, and even though it means more yard work to be done, uh, the idea that it means we have more time to enjoy being outside. For those of us who live here in Northeast Ohio, you know, every opportunity we have to like enjoy uh, life outside is really good, right? For us, for the Roscoe's, it also means uh, a new house project. I was thinking about this the other day, and I think that we've done like one significant house project every year that we've lived here. And so this makes uh, what we're doing right now the sixth major house project that we've done. Um, this one for us entails replacing a deck uh, and adding a patio space uh, with a fire pit in our backyard where we hope to be able to um, have a have a, a better outdoor space to invite people over to have conversation and share meals in our backyard and doing this project um, as anyone else who's done things like this will obviously know has meant so much measuring like measuring boards measuring lengths for concrete measuring heights like all these different things that have to be measured and remeasured and did I get that measurement right? Measuring, measuring, measuring. Now, so I've been thinking about measuring a lot and how it actually comes pretty natural to us, right? We think about all the things that we measure in life, ratings of shows and movies, the performance of athletes and teams, the judging of contestants on reality shows. Uh, we live in a world where we're always trying to quantify things. We're always trying to measure things. As we open up our Bibles this morning, we're going to look at uh, a few different passages of Scripture, and what I want to do is sort of lead us with this question. How do we measure our growth as disciples of Jesus? How do we measure that? What metric would we use to assess the health of the body of Christ, the church? In a world where so much else is predicated on measurements, these seem like good questions for us to ask this morning, how we measure our own growth as disciples and how we measure 
and assess the health of the body of Christ, the church. So we're going to start in the Gospel of John. I'm not sure who's helping us with slides this morning, but there should be text slides to follow along. We're going to be in John 13, and I'm reading verses uh, 31 to 35. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. This is a lot of glory and glorification. My children, I, want, I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. Here's what I really want us to see. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Lots of glory and lots of love. Um, I bet you agree with me when I say that I'm not sure that there's been a more significant crime committed against words in the English language than the way in which the word love has been stripped of its truest meaning, right? This comes up for all of us from time to time, just how cavalierly this word love gets thrown around for all kinds of things. You can just think about in the course of a day, all the things that you might say that you love or that other people say that they love because it's Easter. I was thinking the other day about how I tell people I love peeps, which of course raises all kinds of questions about the state of my soul for people that think peeps are the most disgusting thing on the face of the earth. Uh, but even if you enjoy them, to say that you love them, love little marshmallow sugary things. What we tend to do, I've noticed, is that we make the word love synonymous with what we have a personal preference for or something that we merely enjoy. And of course, that's just light years away from what Jesus had in mind when he's speaking to his disciples here. Jesus not only knows that he's on his way to his own death, he's also aware of the suffering and the confusion and the doubt and the fear that are all about to befall his disciples. He's aware of all of that as he is giving them this final command, this final admonition. It's in light of all of that, that all of the things that he might have, of all the things he might have chosen to say at that moment, he says, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You all know that our, our family is still reeling from the loss of my father and my stepfather in recent months. And both of those situations, um, neither, of, neither of them had the opportunity to speak any kind of final words ahead of their passing. They didn't see it coming. And of course, I've wondered what they might have said. I've wondered what I might say. I wonder if you thought about what you might say. If you knew that you were about to step into the glory that awaits and had your family and friends all gathered around you, of all of the things that you might say, what would you want your final words to be to those around you? As I think about that, it's not entirely difficult for me to see how this was the last thing that Jesus would want to impart 
that the most important thing he says isn't that you believe such and such. It's not that you remember some specific moralism. It's not an admonition to not do something. It's a single, simple command. Love one another. Because this is how everyone everyone else will know that you are my disciples. So here we have an answer to our question. How do we measure our growth as disciples of Jesus? What metric would we use to assess the health of the body of Christ, the church? We measure our growth as disciples by our capacity to love others as Jesus has loved us. And we assess the health of the body of Christ by its embodiment of sacrificial love towards others. Those are the measures that we are invited to use. And so this then is one of the most important questions, I think, for us to ask ourselves as we move through life. Do more and more people recognize me or do more and more people recognize us as a congregation, as a person or a church that's radically committed to loving one another? That's the measure. That's the question. And real quick, I just want to tell you what unnerves me about that. It's not actually about what's involved in being a person of sacrificial love, which by itself is plenty hard, right? We should all be willing to admit that, not wanting to gloss over that. What actually unnerves me most is that it's not my own evaluation that matters. It's the evaluation of others. It's whether or not other people, those who may not even be disciples of Jesus, observe in me a manner of being that they can't quite make sense of and therefore gives them reason to consider that there just might be something about Jesus and the church that's worth their time and their attention. The question, friends, to you and I this morning is, do other people look at me and see an uncharacteristic quality of love towards other people? That leads us uh, really well into our second passage this morning, which comes from Acts 11, verses 1 to 18. Uh, Let me read this for us as we move through the slides. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. It was in the city of Joppa. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. And then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He'll bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. And then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. There's three things I want us to see in that passage this morning in relation to what we already read in John about Jesus' command to love one another. The first is that you and I shouldn't be surprised if our commitment to love others, as Christ has loved us, raises some eyebrows among those who would think about you or would think about me as one of us. Does that make sense? The idea that like we all are always kind of moving towards in-groups, people who are like us, think like us, act like us, and we have this mentality, you know, we feel most comfortable when we're with people that we feel like, these are my people, this is uh, uh, where I feel comfortable and at home, right? And if we begin then to love other people who don't fit into that group, you can be sure that it's going to raise some eyebrows. It's a fearful thing to risk being cut off from the communities of people to which we belong. I mean, one of the clearest ways I feel like we see this all the time in uh, our news cycles is when politicians break ranks with those in their own party, right? Uh, That is what we would call the power of the mob, and it is really strong. Um, you can be sure of tremendous kinds of backlash from the group that you're supposed to belong to if you ever deviate from what they think it means to belong to that group. And loving other people who are not part of that group is a big indicator of that. So that's what Peter's facing as he comes into Jerusalem. He's criticized for kind of breaking ranks with the circumcision party. And so what does he do? He tells a story. And this is the second thing for us to see, is that there's few things that are more powerful or disrupting of our prejudices and assumptions than a personal story told by someone that we think of as one of us, right? This doesn't always go well. It's not a guarantee, but I would hazard to guess that for most of us, if we were to think about a time in our lives when we've changed our mind on something that we felt was important at kind of a deep level. A key part of that will have had to do with our hearing of a story from someone that we identify with having changed their own mind. Why is that? Well, I'm sure that there's a number of reasons for it, right? Reasons why it matters when someone who we think, oh, this is, they're like a family member to me or a friend to me. This is someone who's like me and they're bringing a new narrative, a new understanding, a new perspective. We're more likely to expect it, to uh, accept it. But I also think there's one reason at the top of this list. It's a quote by a guy named David Augsburger. It's on the next slide. Whoever is doing that could advance that slide for us. And here it is. That being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. Just sit with that for a second. And this is a quote that has stuck with me over the years. This idea that being heard is so close to being loved. That to most of us, 
it's virtually indistinguishable. One way I've heard that same saying boil down even further is that attention is the most basic form of love. Attention is the most basic form of love. So can I ask, in the course of your life, who has really paid attention to you? Like, Who has God brought into your life and you have felt seen, you have felt heard, you have felt acknowledged? My guess is you would also say you felt like that person has loved you. And likewise, I'd wonder if I could ask this morning, who are you blessing by giving them your full and undivided attention these days? If what Augsburger said is right and true, that some, we can't even usually differentiate between one taking on someone's attention and feeling loved. Who is it that you are giving that kind of attention and love to these days? From the moment that we are born until our final breath, what you and I most want and need is to be held in the gaze of another to be attended to and to be cared for. You and I are created for connection. And one of the primary ways that the connection that we all long for is made is through sustained attention to one another, being heard as we share our heart and our stories with one another. That leads to the third and final thing I want us to see in this passage. It's the effect of following through on Jesus's final request that we should love one another as he has loved us. At the end of this passage, we read these words that when they heard this, they heard Peter's story and of what God had done. They had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Gang, we have to understand the magnitude of that simple sentence. Because for centuries upon centuries, the Jews were certain of one thing, that the only hope for Gentiles was for them to become Jews. The Jews were willing to embrace the Gentiles, but they had to sacrifice who they were and what they cared about and uh, a host of other things. And they actually had to take on Jewish identity. And to be sure, they're it was an openness on the part of the Jews to welcome in the Gentiles who might have wanted to convert to the Jewish faith and all that that meant. But what they were coming to realize through this story of Peter's was that the salvation that God was offering in Christ wasn't a matter of their openness to host others, to have others become just like them, but it was actually their willingness to be hosted by others that the Jews actually needed to see how God was at work amongst the Gentiles in order for them to know what was really open up to them and what God was doing. In order for the Jews to come to know the full depth and expanse of God's great love, they needed to receive and receive how God was at work in others and be willing to rejoice and join in with something that they didn't control. That's such a big deal. I mean, at least for me, the desire for control. But what we see in the story, what we see about the nature of love is that it often involves our taking our hands off the wheel and our being open to new things that God might want to do that involve not so much 
a willingness on our part for like God, for other people to come to us, but actually for us to go to other people. This is, after all, is precisely what it means for us to love as Jesus loved us. He came to us <laughs> with love and mercy and grace. And so too, we're invited to join him in going to others in the same way. Uh, hey, our final text for this morning, I'm going to close with this, is one of my favorite in all of the Bible. It's Revelation 21, 1-6. You'll see the words there on the screen. And it reads like this. Then I saw a new Jerusalem, uh, sorry, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. To wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the, first, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who's thirsty, I'll give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is the vision that John was given of where God is taking history. It's the scene of the fulfillment of God's unfathomable love for the entirety of the created order and especially of those made in the image and likeness of God himself, you and I, friends. It's the destination that exists in Jesus' mind as he says to his disciples, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. That this is where God is taking history and each of us is why it's so important that we allow the love of God to cause us to listen intently to the stories of others and to move us towards others and expressions of sacrificial love as Peter experienced in the book of Acts. It is an example for us this morning, friends. This is the good news that's been entrusted to you and I. Not that God sends Jesus as some sort of get-out-of-hell-free card, but that there is a new world coming into existence, even now. And that by God's grace, we may enter into the reality and the joy of that kingdom by abiding in the love of Christ for one another as we testify to our discipleship to King Jesus. Amen and amen.